In Acts 25, we pick up in the middle of the storyline. There's a brief backstory. You guys are already standing. You know, you know how this goes. I love you. Uh, all right, go ahead. Go ahead, stand. We stand in honor of the Lord's word. So thank you for standing in honor of our king. Brief backstory, and then we'll get into the reading. I promise it's brief, so stay standing. Paul went to Jerusalem against all the advice of his friends. Everybody's telling him it's going to be bad for you there, but he went anyway. A riot breaks out amidst false accusations, and Paul is rescued by being arrested by the Romans. He manages to give a speech, a sermon to the crowd of people hating him where he retells his story of transformation in Christ. I was a Pharisee, he said, who persecuted Christians until I met the risen Lord Jesus. And now I'm preaching salvation in his name to all people, including the Gentiles. And when he said that, the crowd erupted again. And Paul was eventually sent before the Sanhedrin. He was on trial there and he provoked a fight between the Sadducees and Pharisees by talking about the resurrection. Well, that got him arrested again. He was then sent to Felix, the governor, to be tried as a Roman citizen. And Paul had several opportunities to speak before Felix and his wife. But he was kept in custody, but allowed visitors Paul was left in prison for two years. Don't let that pass us by. Luke made that very short little statement. But he's left in prison for two years. As Felix leaves office, he abandons Paul to his successor, Festus, to deal with him. And Festus tries the case, but realizes there there are no legitimate charges against him. And yet the Jews are adamant that Paul must be put to death. So Festus wants to send him back to Jerusalem, but Paul appeals to Caesar. So we pick up our text right there. Acts 25, verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. Well, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal. And ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So being at a loss... For how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear him myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. 
So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That's a funny word, isn't it? Pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he appealed, as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Right? So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And we'll have to pause right there. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your word and every word in this book is meant for your glory. And so, Lord, help us to see in this part of the story the truths you want us to see about yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we'll have to break the flow of this text, obviously, into two messages. We've got the the setup and then the, the speech. And there's too much in the speech and... I thought not enough in the setup. So I was kind of at a dilemma for how to how to preach this. But the Holy Spirit has resolved that for me. Festus is the new Roman governor. He's inherited Felix's prisoner, Paul. He seems to be decisive at first. And then he seems to cater to wanting to give favors to the Jews. But he's had a problem because he has a, a prisoner who's been incarcerated for years with no real charges to speak of, and yet the Jews want him dead. This is a dilemma. So Festus is in a tight spot, you know. If he sets Paul free, he, he makes Felix, his predecessor, look like a fool. And he infuriates the Jews right as he starts governing. If he sentences an innocent man to death, then he compromises his integrity as a leader. So he tries to sidestep and do the Jews a favor by sending him back to Jerusalem. Let me get this guy off my docket, right? Let me get rid of him. Somebody else can handle this. This is a big problem. But Paul's no fool. He pulls his Roman trump card and demands to be tried before Caesar. This was the right of any Roman citizen if they felt they weren't getting a fair shake. Well, now Festus is in a mestus. I knew I could count on you, right? Yeah. Can't resist the dad jokes, right? So if Festus sends Paul to Caesar without good reason, 
with no legitimate charges to show for keeping a Roman citizen in prison for years, it will not go well for him. So he needs help. So he phones a friend. (laughs) He needs help from someone who knows the Jewish religion, the customs, right? And so in comes King Agrippa II, who has come to visit a newly installed governor. And as they visit, Festus mentions the dilemma about Paul. Maybe they're having lunch. Maybe it's over coffee. He's like, hey, man, I got this guy, Paul. Kind of hoping you could help me with him. Who is Agrippa II? Well, he's the last of the Herod dynasty. The Herodian kingship will die with him. His heritage is fraught with evil, power-hungry men. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Remember him? When Jesus is born, he gets word that a new king has been born. And he issues a decree to slaughter all the children under two years of age just to make sure he kills this up-and-coming king. Well, his plan failed. Agrippa II's great uncle was Herod Antipas, who was notorious for adultery, incest. Herod Antipas is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded at the request of his adulteress's mistress's daughter. After she did a little dance for him. Johnny B, just John the Baptist. Johnny B had come to Herod Antipas to rebuke him for adultery. He lost his head. Herod Agrippa II is the son, obviously, of Agrippa I, who we learned about in Acts chapter 12. This man had James killed, had Peter imprisoned and would have killed him. But God gave him worms. And we learned as we read through that chapter that our king is over all kings. And we relearn that today. So this guy, Agrippa II, he comes from the shallow end of the gene pool. This Agrippa II and his sister, mind you, Bernice, who is also his mistress. They come in with, the Bible says, great pomp, right? Great pomp. I don't know about you. When I hear that word pomp, I always think about da, 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 da. Anybody else? That's the only way I, pomp and circumstance, the only way I know it. But the word pomp means fantasia. I mean, that's actually the Greek word fantasia. So it's got this idea of like explosive colors, a parade of lights and trumpets and just really boisterous uh, show, very showy, very dramatic. So imagine, if you will, all the colorful flags, the music, the dancers, The city leaders who are introduced very pompously as they come in. It seems as if Agrippa and Bernice 
And Festus have pulled out all the stops for this little hearing between them and this man, Paul. All this fanfare is intended to show their great power, their greatness, their, their might. Meanwhile, the Bible says that Paul is brought in. Probably in his two-year-old prison pajamas. There's no fanfare. In fact, I was reading up a bit about Paul's appearance and I discovered some things I thought very interesting. He's not a particularly compelling man to look at, apparently. Eusebius, a historian, gives a good record of what Paul looked like, actually. He says that he was a short, bow-legged man with a badly receding hairline and a unibrow. I thought you might think that was good, too. So the contrast here is undeniable, right? This huge fanfare, trumpets, flags, colors, fireworks. In comes Agrippa and Bernice and everyone bows. And Paul is brought in. Right? Thought that was funnier than you do. Um. If you stood back and looked at this scene, the beautiful array of purple and gold and trumpets and someone announcing the royal entrance of a king, as opposed to the lowly limp of a raggedy dressed prisoner, Paul. With this scene in mind, I want to ask you three questions and we're going to answer these together. Who has the authority here? Where is the power really? And who is in ultimate control? When we think about the sovereignty of our God, I want you to think about King Jesus in terms of his authority, his power, and his control. So first, the Lord Jesus has all authority. The political game in this story is all too familiar. A Roman governor is stuck between sentencing an innocent man or setting him free only to have a Jewish revolt on his hands. So he calls in a Jewish king, Herod, for help. The similarities are striking between the trials of Paul and the trial of Jesus. Both were brought before a Roman governor and a Jewish king. Both are falsely accused. Both are declared innocent while demanded for their death. Both were given a private hearing before ruling authorities. Both proudly proclaim gospel truth without fear of death. Think back, if you will, to when Jesus stood before Pilate in John chapter 19. Pilate looked at Jesus So don't you know who I am? I can release you and I can kill you. And Jesus looked back at him with what I'm sure were blistering words. You have no authority except that which my father has given you. Jesus is clear here. He says, I have authority. You are just doing your part in my plan. Think back. These political leaders 
They put on a fancy show, right? They may have an impressive appearance, but their authority has been given to them and it has its limits. Jesus is the real authority and he's already given the orders. Remember in Acts 23, verse 11, Paul's had a frustrating time. Uh, He just raised a ruckus in the Sanhedrin. They put him back in jail for the night. He knows there's threats for his life. He's just discouraged. And the Lord Jesus himself shows up to Paul in Acts 23, 11 and just speaks very short words and says, take courage. You've done well here in Jerusalem. And you will do well in Rome. Well, that was all Paul needed. He had the assurance of the king who had all authority. Paul has been commissioned to go to Rome by Jesus himself. And there will be no one to stop it. No matter the fanfare. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Church, listen to this. There is no higher authority than Jesus. So we rest in his rule. Second truth. The Lord Jesus has all power. There's an appearance of power here, isn't there? Appearance of power versus actual power. Festus and Agrippa, both, they're both making politically expedient decisions. Both of them are thinking, how can I save my own skin here? Whatever it costs me, I need to do whatever will appear best. This is the way politicians often operate, right? Let me do whatever's going to make for a good photo op, not necessarily what is right. They position themselves for advancement and to gain more power. Jesus cannot gain more power. He already has it all. So these guys in their quest for more power, are stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's no politically expedient move at this point. It's actually a bit funny to see these powerful men squirm because of a preaching prisoner. Did you notice why this meeting has been called? Festus needs Agrippa to help him write a letter to send with Paul to Caesar. Explaining his crime and why he's already done time in prison. Paul's a Jew. He's a Roman citizen. And Festus is hoping Agrippa can find some Jewish, some Jewish explanation for sending Paul to the highest court and taking the time of the Caesar. What's been happening for two years? Do you wonder? I mean, Luke doesn't tell us what's been happening for two years while Paul's been in custody. I want you to think about this. This is remarkable. Y'all, this blew my mind. Was time wasted while Paul was in prison? We don't get any detail of that, right? 
All we, all we read at the end of Acts 24 is that Felix left Paul in prison for two years. That's all we read. We get no detail. Nothing happening there. And my mind often wonders, or, is, what is, is God doing anything? They attempted to silence this preacher, to stop this missionary, to push pause on his purpose, to stop the movement of the gospel. But Felix had set it up where Paul could have visitors. And many, many scholars believe that during these two years, Luke stayed with Paul. And Luke wrote his gospel and the book of Acts during these two years. Now, if that's true, imagine this. These earthly leaders wield their power to stop the spread of the gospel through Paul. He's been imprisoned and silenced, and as far as they know, it's over for him. While Paul's message and the story of the spreading gospel isn't heard through Paul's lips for two years. It has been read by millions for 2,000 years. I want you to think about the power of our king as it relates to the power of petty people. All the fanfare to silence this man. And King Jesus says, the kingdom is like leaven in the loaf. You don't see it working, but it's working. They thought they were powerful, but Jesus has all power in church. Because of the power of Jesus, you can trust in his reign. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus has all control, all control. Now, again, we're asking the question, who has ultimate control in this situation? Who's in control? And by control, what I mean is who's determining the outcome? I want you to listen to this. God is so sovereignly in control that he can achieve his purposes even through self-serving decisions of sinners. Examples. Joseph and his betraying brothers. Joseph sold into slavery, spent 17 years in and out of prison, We know of the story of Joseph at the end of his life offering gracious forgiveness to his brothers who betrayed him, threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery, lied to their father that an animal must have killed him. I mean, this was a terrible story of familial betrayal. Well, God raised up. Listen, God raised up the one they threw down. But don't forget that Joseph was a dreamer and God gave him dreams of his brothers bowing down before him. Remember that 
That's kind of what ticked him off in the first place. Now, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing for the kid brother to tell his older brothers he's dreaming of them bowing down to him. But God gave that dream for our benefit. Do you know why? Because it shows us who's sovereignly in control of the outcomes. Here, we get a glimpse of the end from the beginning. We see clearly that our God is in complete control and can use even the self-serving decisions of sinners to accomplish His purposes. He's sovereign. Another example, the prime example. There's many, many more, but the prime example would be Jesus and the betrayal of Judas. Jesus told him at dinner, y'all, one of you will betray me. Why would he say that? Well, for the same reason he told them many times about his suffering and his impending death. He even explained to them that he was telling them so that when it happened, they wouldn't lose faith. He says, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen so that you won't lose heart, so that you'll know I'm still in control. He did not want them to forget in the dark what he said in the light. He was showing them that no one can take his life. No, he lays it down. And he would have authority to take it up again. Jesus even has power over death. Death has no control over our God. Now back to Paul and these bumbling political leaders who are clamoring for a reason to send him to Rome. Well, Paul couldn't have known all that God was orchestrating. He couldn't have known. Two years he laid in prison. He could not have known what was going on, what God's doing, what the pieces God's moving around. He could not know, but he could do this. He could lay his head on that prison pillow at night and he could remember the words of Jesus. Take courage. You've done well for me in Jerusalem and you will do well in Rome. He could remember the words of the Savior who has all authority, all power and all control. And he can rest in his sovereign rule, trust in his good reign. From the moment Jesus knocked Paul off his horse on the road to Damascus, the Lord told him that he would carry the gospel to Gentiles, kings and the people of Israel and that he would suffer for Christ. Well, that was in Acts chapter 9. We're now 30 years later. Jesus told him when he first saved him, you're going to preach to kings. That's how much our Jesus is in control. Paul will go to Rome. Jesus has already ordered his steps. But get this. I love this. Paul's steps to Rome will be by way of police escort with a letter from a governor and a king and will certainly get him a hearing before the Caesar. Think about that for a second. What has Jesus orchestrated to make sure his gospel gets before kings and the Caesar? 
Jesus is sovereignly in control of the ends and the means. His rule is not just big enough for destinations. It's big enough for the journey. Some of you need to hear that and apply it to your world right now because your world right now is a little dark. It's not where you thought it would be. It's harder than you wanted it to be. It's a detour. You're not on the path you would have chosen. And you need to hear this. Our, our king is not just in control of the end game. He's in control of the journey. Listen to the words of Scripture as we finish this morning. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And the prophet Isaiah, I love this truth, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Our God is in control. And lastly, I want you to hear the promise of Paul writing to the church in Rome. And we know that for those who love God, all things, somebody say all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, what is the good What is good? What is good? All things work together for good. What is good? Is it that you have a nicer car, a nicer house? Things are going well for you. No, listen, this is the good. That you be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good of the gospel. The good of the gospel is your transformation in Christ to be more like him. And you know what? Sometimes that comes through the good of suffering. Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. Oh, and this is good news. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There will be a day when we will, as followers of King Jesus, come into eternal good. And there will be no more evil, no more sin, no more pain, no more tears. But until that day, we live in the already, but not yet of these moments. Where we are already promised to be justified and glorified, but not yet. And so we endure with patience, with faithfulness, knowing and considering it pure joy. That we face many trials of various kinds. 
For those trials produce in us patience and endurance and faith and hope. He is transforming us to be conformed into the image of his son. So Christian, exhortation to you, brother, sister in Christ. Rest in Christ's control. Don't panic. Praise him. Even in your struggle, even while you're waiting, put your head on the prison's pillow knowing he is all authority, all power, all control. No enemy of this world will conquer our king. Worship King Jesus, Christian. Unbeliever in the room, we love you're here. We hope that you see Jesus as glorious as he is. I want you to know that you can spin your wheels to work your plans. Or you can surrender to King Jesus and join in his. Pray with me.